And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. We live in a time when satire and humor have taken a front seat in our political debate. And nowhere is that more evident than on Chelsea Handler's eponymous show on uh, Netflix, uh, which she has turned into a sometimes hilarious but very pointed uh, forum for a discussion on uh, our current politics and our current president. I sat down with Chelsea the other day as she was passing through Chicago uh, to talk about her life and career and her very distinct views about Donald Trump. Chelsea Handler, welcome. Thank you, David. So good to see you. So uh, tell me what it's like to be a Jewish Mormon kid. Okay, well, um, the Mormon part didn't really creep in until... Your mom was Mormon. My mom was German from Germany and Mormon. There's a big Mormon contingency in Germany, or there was. So she was a German... And met my dad when she was around 20. He was a Jew, so she kind of like tucked the German and the Mormon to bed. Like she just just agreed, like, okay, we'll raise our kids. She's like, I have to raise my children Jewish. And she agreed to do that. So she her Mormonism was a little bit, it was dormant for a while. I didn't, I thought she was Jewish until I was like 12 or 13. I didn't know that my mom wasn't Jewish. Um, at Hebrew school or, or at when like, you... bat mitzvah. She was on the bima reading from the Torah. Like, I thought my mom was Jewish. But um, when my brother... <laughs> so did, did the rabbi, probably. Yeah, I think he did. And <laughs> then, actually, it's funny because we buried her in a Jewish cemetery because my brother had died earlier. Yes. And he was buried in a Jewish cemetery. And you're not allowed to bury a non-Jew in a Jewish cemetery. So we had to lie and pretend she was Jewish and at the funeral, all her friends from her Mormon church <laughs> were at this funeral. And my sister's like, don't make eye contact with any of these people. <laughs> so, yeah, we were from a shady family. <laughs> and um, you, uh, you've talked about the fact that your folks, uh, you, were way, you were kind of the caboose on the train here, right? You had five brothers and sisters? Yeah, yeah. I was the youngest of six. And a fair, by, by a fair amount, right? Yeah, well, my old, my next close sister was like she's closest in age was would be she's five and a half years older than me, and yeah. then after that another five years, and then the rest of them were all around that age. Yeah, and uh, so what was that like? Pandemonium. <laughs> I mean, I basically I like to say I raised myself, but clearly I did not. My sisters and brothers had a lot of, they did a lot with me, and my parents did a lot with me, but they just. I was really rebellious. I was really out of control, and they didn't know what to do. And I think at a certain point, they were just like, just do whatever you want. They were tired, and um, and my dad and I had a very kind of tr- tricky relationship for a while. We fought a lot, and I was just bad. I was bad. I mean, I look back, and I was like, oh, my gosh. I can't believe I'm, I didn't, I'm alive. I mean, the things I would do and just... I was just out of control. And my brothers and sisters, it was nice because I grew up fast and I was mature before, you know, emotionally. And like I was always in advance. Like I didn't want to hang out with the people my age. I wanted to hang out with my brothers and sisters' friends and people that were older. So I've always hung out with older people. You um, you, you said uh, in an interview um, 
that uh, you had this uh, recurring nightmare. It's my parents trapping me in the basement of our house where I grew up, and, and I'm coming up the stairs, and I'm screaming, yelling for them to come and get me, and they just ignore me. Uh, I think that actually happened a few times in real life. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, that would cause a recurring nightmare. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, my parents were like, you know, my dad was really into, into me. Like, he was really into me reading, and, you know, we did lots of stuff together. You know, as when I was cute and young, like he liked that I was adorable. Like, you know, in his eyes, he put a lot of value on looks. And so, and then the minute I had an attitude was when he was like, whoa, 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 no, no. Like he wanted, he liked that I was pretty and, you know, wanted, he wanted me to do well in school and I wasn't interested in school. And, but he spent a lot of time with me for somebody with six kids. Um, and, but they definitely were like parents. They didn't show up to, you know, my mom never showed up to a school conference. Or if I had to go to the hospital, you know, I had my appendix out. My dad took me. My my mom was just kind of like, she took a lot of naps. And she was just kind of like really shy. And just, you know, she's the antithesis of me. And <laughs> she was not involved. She didn't want to deal Some with Some of it. us would say it's, it would be a relief if our parents hadn't shown up for student conferences, but I can see where that could be right. unsettling. Yeah, you just want, like, they would forget to pick me up from school or Hebrew school. I'd be at Hebrew school on a Sunday, and at 10.30, like, Isaac, the guy, the janitor from the school who knew our whole family, would be like, your dad is not here. All the cars would line up oh. to pick up all the kids, and I just wanted my car and dad's car to be in that line. Like I just wanted them to pick me up on time in a real car where there wasn't like a tire hanging off of the back. And uh, they weren't really uh, they weren't those kinds of parents. There was a lot of love, but they just never did any. But not a lot of energy. Yes, exactly. Apparently. Exactly. They had no energy. Yeah. But yeah. my dad would show up to softball games and stuff. But he was the one you didn't want showing up. You know, you <laughs> wanted your mom. Whatever. You know, I wanted my mom to be there. So I don't know. My mom's just she was sweet and everything, but she was not a lot of energy. Exactly. You, um, you know, I, I lost my dad when I was a kid. He, committed suicide. So it was a sudden and unexpected thing. You lost a brother when you were nine years old. That seems to have been a really, as it would be in any family, uh, a really horrible, disruptive, scarring thing. Yeah. You know, my brother died, That was, which was har- horrible in every way. I mean, watching my parents, what it did to my parents was that was when, you know, my mom became religious after that. That's when she rediscovered her Mormonism and after my brother died. But watching what happens to your parents when your sibling dies is 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 what was so heartbreaking because my dad was this big, strong, loud personality who, you know, in my mind at that time took care of everything. And then to see your father breaking down and crying in front of people at my house, like my dad, I was really, I would sit there and it's like, stop crying. You know, to myself, like, why is he doing this? Why is he doing this? Don't break down. Don't break. You're a man. You're my dad. You have to be stronger. Like, if they're that weak, it just it just does a number on you emotionally about, oh, God, my whole family's a mess. We're going to never recover from this. So in certain ways, <clears throat> when my mom died many years later, we were prepared for that. You know, it was like six months of her. Sure. She had cancer several times mm-hmm. and she would go in remission and then she would fight. And then she had just given up and she and she couldn't fight. That was so much easier for me. And by the time she died, I was, I was like, I, she, I wanted to help her die because I, I, we all mourned her while she was still alive. Yeah. And you don't want to see anybody like that. And yeah. I know my mom didn't want to be remembered like that. But I think compared to the two, having somebody snatched out of your life and having somebody go slowly, it's probably easier for the person that's snatched. But for the people that are left behind, it's 
it's easier for them to go slowly so you can say goodbye. Dude, I Excuse spent me. some time with my mom at the end of her life, and they were probably the best conversations that we had, you know. Um, and she was very reconciled to what was, was happening. But did you have a chance to... Yeah, I was in England on my book tour, my very first book I had written, and I... Um, my sister called. She's like, I think you need to come home. And so I went home, and my mom was in the hospital. And I remember walking in the hospital room, and there was a woman smoking a cigarette next to my mom's bed. And I lost my shit. My father and my brother were sitting there. It wasn't the doctor, was it? <laughs> yeah, it was, no, it was a nurse. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I just lost it. I was like, what, what, the, what, what the hell are you doing allowing this to happen right now to my brother? And, and I lost it and ran out of the hospital and ran to the you know the nurses center i'm like get my mother out of that room what do you, and i my my dad and my brother went were like calm down calm down i go this is not acceptable nothing about this is acceptable and from that moment on i mean i didn't leave my mother's hospital for two weeks and then we took her to hospice and i mean you know i'd lie in bed with her at night she was pretty out of it but she wanted you know she needed morphine every few hours so i'd have to go get the nurse and my dad i remember was just so out of touch with the idea that she was dying in such denial. And he'd be in the, 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 the hospital room. I remember walking in one day and he's, I went to the bathroom and I was like, put the paper down and watch her while I go to the bathroom. And he, and I came back and she had vomited like all over. It was like in her collarbones, like a mess. And he's just holding the New York times, reading it up completely oblivious. And I just went off on him and I was like, what is wrong with, you know, like there was a, there was a period during that time where like I really became an adult because I realized, oh, they don't have any idea what the hell they're doing. You know, nobody in this family like knows that that you just accept a certain, you just accept something when you're at a hospital. You say, okay, fine. You defer to doctors. It's like, no, you stand up for yourself. This is your mother. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be in a room with somebody so smoking a cigarette. It wasn't that he didn't want to deal with it. You think he was just oblivious. He was in denial. He goes, well, mm-hmm. I don't care. And he's selfish. He was like, you know, whatever we have to do to keep her alive. But to answer your original question, which was, did I have nice conversations? Yeah, my mom said some really funny things right before she was going to die. She was like, I know you're going to help me. I know you get it. I don't want to be, I just, I, please don't postpone this anymore. She goes, I want to go. I'm done mm-hmm. fighting. And I was like, I got it. I got it. I totally get it. Mm-hmm. And she's like, thank you. I know I can trust you. I'm like, you can. And with my, and then she also said, and watch out your father. I know you think he's great, but he's a real pain in the fucking ass. So get ready for me not to be around. <laughs> and when you, when my, when he, this she, apparently wasn't a revelation to you. It wasn't, but. You know, I was going through, you know how you have some... Jarring when you hear it from your mother, though. <coughs> I was like, Mom! And she's like, I'm not joking. But, you know, she has was, con- like, keeping him, you know, at bay to many in many respects. Like, she was keeping him under wraps. Without her, he became a mess. He just completely d- discombobulated yeah. in every capacity. He's just... So, yeah, I had some nice moments with her. And I was really proud of myself to be able to be there with her for that. And my brothers and sisters, then we went to hospice. My dad's like, we're not taking her to hospice. She's not dying. I'm like, she is dying. And if you don't say goodbye now, you're not going to say goodbye. So you can deal with reality or you can deal with it later. And we took her to the hospice and, and she, you know, it's a bumpy ride and her head was thing. And she's, and then she looked up at me. She's like, Oh my God, am I dead yet? When is this going to be over? So she had a sense of humor and it was kind of, you know, it was funny in those moments because in those moments, you know, it is such a, it's so nice to laugh like that when you're yeah, in such yeah. pain and saying goodbye to somebody. Well, that raises this issue. You know, I'm so I've I've had conversations with a number of uh, of comics and people 
it, 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 it always strikes me that people who are hilarious often also have had tragedy tragedies and that in a sense being funny is a way to to it's like self-medicating <laughs> in some ways or deny, I don't know explain it to me I guess is you you're so you're 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 insightful about people and I'm sure you've thought about this um what makes someone a comedian I think I mean I think you know it's a, I think it's a, an amalgam of many things that happen in your life. You know, it, you kind of have to have a sense of humor about things. Everyone in my family is sarcastic and has a sense of humor, and we all are just like, uh. like you, you. We had the same reaction to our parents, and we knew it was unruly, and like our parents were so disorganized and didn't have a game plan. The tragedy part, you know, I think that it's the only way to get through it. It's the only way you need. First of all, you're in denial for a while. You can't talk about it. But the the laughter, you know, you know, you know, you know that scene in that movie Steel Magnolias where Sally Field and is with Olympia Dukakis and she's crying because Julia Roberts had, her daughter just died and she's crying and she's crying and somebody's like, I, she's like, I just want to hit somebody. I just want to hit somebody. And she's like, here, hit Weeza and throws this <laughs> other woman in front of her, like. It's those moments, you know, we had a moment like that and in the hospice and my, my, my brother died. I mean, sorry, my mother died. So many people died. Um, my, and my, we were all sleeping on cots in the room. My brothers and sisters and I were sleeping there. And my brother, Glenn, who has a sick sense of humor, said about my brother, Roy and Sean, he goes, how long do you think those two have been seeing each other? Because <laughs> they were sharing in bed. <laughs> But it was one of those moments like you have it. It breathes such life into the situation. It makes you cherish the people that you're sharing that situation with. And, you know, I think it doesn't really answer your question. I think just to be a comedian, you have to take the piss out of A, yourself. You have to not take yourself seriously to start to become a comedian because you have to start by making fun of yourself and then making fun of others because you can't do the other without having a sense of humor about yourself. Some people end up taking themselves way too seriously and go, and then overcorrect, you know, after they've had some success. But I think the key to really having a sense of humor is it has to start with how you view yourself and laughing at yourself and your insanity. You know, I laugh at myself all the time because I, I'm an idiot and I screw things up. I can't find things. I can't turn on a TV. I get frustrated, whatever. But I embrace it and I don't, you know, I don't ever get mad at myself. So I think that's part of being a comedian is to really have have and also to have a bright light in your life. Like I have, I feel like, there's so much to be grateful and happy for that, you know, it makes me, it makes me motivated to just be sillier, you know? And I think when you're silly, things can get really funny. If you have a playful attitude about life, it's, it's funny if you have like a little twinkle in your eye, you know? So, and do you think um, that the other thing, I, I, and I, I don't want to dwell on this, but it, it just interests me. Uh, you probably maybe this or maybe you didn't this documentary that was done a few years back called i think it was called comedian about jerry seinfeld trying to get his act back i didn't see it after he left uh but i heard about it yeah and what was striking about it was how serious he was about this business of getting of of getting a an act together and part of it was he went to these little clubs with a pad full of jokes that he had written and he 
try these jokes out. And some of them really sucked. And the crowd was unsparing and were like booing him. And and it was like, wow, this is tough to stand in front of people. And I mean, I know myself from public speaking that, you know, I like to try a few jokes out here. And, oh, well, you're so but when they, when so they, you? when they, yes, I'm a laugh riot. But when they, uh, when they fall flat, it's like, ouch. Yeah, it's embarrassing. It's humiliating. It's the toughest thing. And I think it takes a lot of balls to do stand up. I had never planned on becoming a stand up. It was just something that kind of occurred to me at some point. Um, so I wrote somewhere that it had to do with uh, you going to DUI class yes, or something. Yes, yes. Thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> I um, got a DUI when I was like 21 and I had to go to these DUI classes and you would go for six weeks or it felt like six years, but it was a long period of time. And you go once a week and every week somebody had to get up and tell their story about their DUI. And I had never publicly spoken before. I was 21 and I had made a terrible mistake, obviously. So... And I just would always be like, don't pick me, don't pick me, I can't get up, I can't, I don't know what I'm going to say, I don't know what I'm going to do, I wasn't prepared. And on the very last class of the very, you know, he picked, it was my turn, because everyone else had gone, because I kept maneuvering different ways to sit in the classroom so that he wouldn't pick me. And I got up and I told my story just off the cuff about what happened and and my sister, I had my sister's ID, and she was Mormon now, too, so she was doubly pissed because I shouldn't be drinking. <laughs> Meanwhile, my Mormon mother had given me her ID, so and that I called the cop a racist. Meanwhile, we were both white. So I, it was just, I had all these like little things about the story, and people were laughing, and I was like, this is awesome. And the whole room was laughing, and finally the guy came over. He's like, okay, this isn't a stand-up comedy. Like, <laughs> get down now, okay? You're, like, up here for a little bit too long. Like, I would not get off the stage. And somebody said, to, and that night, they were like, you, you should do stand-up comedy. And I was like, really? That seems awful. And they said, yeah, you should. And I did, just because they suggested it. I was like, okay, maybe I should do stand-up comedy. At least then I can write my own lines and don't have to read something else, something that someone else has written for me, you know? And that's what I really love. I love to be able to be in charge of my material. Because you had been, you went out there to be an actress. Yeah, I wanted to be, I think I just wanted to be famous. I wanted attention. I wanted people to know who I was because I thought I was important. And, you know, a little attention goes a long way. And luckily, I'm not that level of a narcissist that I needed. Otherwise, you'd have to be president of the United States. Yes, I would have to be president of the United States yes. if I were really a narcissist. <laughs> um, I, but I, I, get a lot out of working hard now. You know, it turns into different things. Like comedy turns into different things over over the course of your career. You know, I used to do stand-up. I don't do stand-up anymore. And I now I do my show on Netflix and I get to do a different, you know, a different form of comedy. It's it's smarter. It's it's more thoughtful. It's political. It's and we put a lot of effort into it. And I'm surrounded by different people than I was even on my previous show, which was a silly show on the E! Network, which all I did was talk about celebrities. After seven years of that, I was like, this is a fucking nightmare. I cannot talk about celebrities anymore. I don't give a shit. So then I, you know, my sister goes, how long before you're done with politics? <laughs> because I burned <laughs> something so hard that I like, you know, and then I lose interest. I'm like, okay, now what's next? But the idea is to constantly challenge and like, you know, it's an edification for me. I Now I'm obsessed with politics and yeah. this is where I'm at right now. So... Being able to talk about it, being able to talk to, like, you know, having the people I get on my show, yourself included, having to be having these conversations, it stimulates me. And for me, I need to be stimulated because if I'm, you know, not, dangerous things can happen. The, um, you, but you'd stop doing stand up. Yes. I decided I was going to stop when I was 40. I'm 42. Mm -hmm. I just thought that was a good time to stop doing stand up. And I also wasn't, 
I burned myself out. I did so much of it and did so many book tours, which were, would coincide with... Your books you know, did pretty well. Yeah, yeah. They're number one New York Times bestsellers, David. Oxford, yes, but who's, me, who, who's counting? Yeah, but who's counting five? Exactly. So, <laughs> uh, they... But I just... I didn't I didn't feel like stand up was like doing what I I was like this isn't giving me as much joy. I don't ever want to walk on a stage where people are paying money and not be happy to be there. I think that's disgusting and I was complaining a little bit and I don't really like to complain. I mean I can say I'm tired but I don't like to complain about I don't want to do this, I don't want to do that. And I was just getting to that point. I just did it. I went too hard, too long, too many tours. And then I just went, okay, I'm done. I've reached the pinnacle of stand-up that I'm just going to reach. So it was over. And so now I feel like this is like a different time for me, more adult. Mm-hmm. You know? We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Chelsea Handler. David's going to take a shower. <laughs> Feeling fully refreshed, we're back. Um, Thank you for taking that shower, David. You're welcome. Very- you're welcome. We don't do that for all the guests. You know? <laughs> I, know, I know you don't. So, um, yeah, I'm interested. We, we, I don't want to gloss over those phases of your uh, career, but uh, because you, you said you went out to Hollywood, you just wanted to be famous. Uh, were you stimulated by the whole celebrity culture out there when you got yeah, out Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fun. You're like, oh, this is fun. I mean, it's fun to be a celebrity, too. You know, you get so many perks. It's fun when you're walking down the street and people say, I love you, or, you know, or I hope you die. <laughs> yeah, that seems less fun. I don't <laughs> no, know. No, they, they save that for Twitter, you know. They don't say that to you in person as much. Um, no, yeah, of course, I was definitely stimulated by it. I was taken in by the whole scene, you know, and then you're like, once you get in, you you know it's not as a, it's like oh that's fun. Does it strike you that because um, it does to me when I was in Washington, um, you know you'd have the White House Correspondents Dinner for example, and all these folks from Hollywood would come, and there was a big fascination with uh, among the Washington people with the Hollywood celebrities, and there was a real fascination among the Hollywood celebrities with the Washington people, and I started thinking that. There is a certain, you talk about narcissism, there is a certain narcissism to the two towns yeah. that is not dissimilar. Yeah, definitely. You know, I just, uh, you know, you, they, they're both towns where very bright, talented people uh, desperately vie for attention. position yeah, and attention. Position. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, they're... That's probably why I'll move to D.C. next, <laughs> just to make a lateral move. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's, a, it's an easy shift. By the way, when you – I know all your other your, – I think your brothers and sisters all went to college. Uh-huh. Uh, you went to Hollywood. Yes. And how did that sit with your folks? Mm. They were just so happy I was leaving. They didn't care where <laughs> I was going. They were like, listen, you should go to Hollywood. You should actually skip college because you're not going to get anything out of it right now. And, you know, in my own – in my defense – I have over, I mean, I have consumed, like, to to make up for the fact that I didn't go to college, I'm so um, uh, particular or, like, I, I just, it's so important to me to constantly educate myself, to constantly be reading, to constantly inform myself because I didn't go to college. So there's a chance I may have gotten more done by not going to college because I spent wow. a lot of, I mean, I've read so many books books I've read so many I've traveled the world I've gotten I've gotten really good at being a good person and growing myself up that I I would go to college now because I would really get something out of it Most of us would do better to go to college yeah, now Yeah and than most when we people did. probably should go a little bit later but I 
but I don't regret not going. It's just always a thing like, who would you, where, where, where did you go to school? It's like, I didn't go to college. You know, there's that thing that you're embarrassed about. It's, you feel like, oh, great. They don't think I'm smart. But, you know, eventually you grow smart. <laughs> yeah. So you know you're smart. Yeah, I think sometimes I can be. Yeah. No, you, well, I think there's you've got a lot of witnesses uh, to this. Um, so what did cause you to, you said you burned out on the celebrity thing, but what attracted you to the sort of more political discussion? I just, I feel so passionately about making a positive impact right now. I think it's in this, in the situation that we're in with this administration and, the climate, um, the political climate right now is really, for me, it, it hurts my heart. Like, it, it feels so inhumane. It feels so, um, uh, there's such disregard for so many valuable and important things and w- why people would want, you know, certain people n- not to have health care, why people would want to defund Planned Parenthood, like a, a place that's been around for a 100 years that helps people get birth control that gives young people and people who have no money to have health insurance, you know, gives them a safe place to go and not be judged. I can't imagine how you can justify that. How can you justify, how can you justify being that callous? It makes me insane. And so I I think about it nonstop. I, you know, I can't stop thinking about it because I want to do everything I can with my platform, I have a TV show, and as long as I do, I'm going to make sure that it does something good for people. But that platform you you had before all of this, so at the beginning of it, uh, what attracted to you to those discussions? I mean, we've we've obviously entered a new era, and I'm going to want to talk to you about that some more in a second. But at the beginning, what made you say, you know what, I'm going to put down these toys? Uh, you know the celebrity stuff, and uh, and I'm, I want I want to talk about this other stuff. And were you worried that people that that would be you know yeah like I, uh, yeah people were like what are you doing like who, who does she think she is Barbara Walters or something you know um, Barbara Walters <laughs> yeah but <laughs> that's how she says it um, I no I mean I was worried I'm always a little bit fearful you know of like I'm a failure but that's what pushes me through like I like. I know if I'm fearful, then I if I get to the other side, then I then I feel great. So I I'm scared a lot. You know, I was scared to start a new show. I was scared how it would be received. It was a little. It was rough in the beginning of my show the first time last year when it started, um, and it took me a while to get my feet underneath me. So that was hard, but I got through it. And so I just wanted to do something that had more. That you know covered a wider that was just more well rounded that covered a wider array. I want to talk about science. I wanted to talk about sports. I wanted to be still funny and have a sense of humor about it, but make stuff that's easily digestible. I I didn't understand the electoral college for the until the sixth time it was explained to me. Yeah, it's because I missed that class in college when I didn't go. Um, But you know, simple things. You know how a bill is passed. You know, like there's a civic. You know, like. I, I, it's a civics lesson for me in many ways. The show has been, and and for a lot of the people that watch it are like, oh God, I didn't realize how that worked either, you know. And and there's so many ins and outs and intricacies of government and how that works, but also things that I have no interest in. Like I don't give a shit about sports, so I'd like to make for the 
them to make me care. So like, you know, I went fishing, deep sea fishing with Vince Wilfork the other day, you know, and he's talking about his stats. I'm like, I don't know anything about you. Like, let's just talk about what else we have in common. You know, he's one of these fun, great guys. And we were fishing. Like, I like... And then also teach me about sports. Like, tell me a little bit. I like to walk away with a little bit more knowledge than I did when I walked in the room. So, um, you know, uh, yeah. it was so just actually, about it was about an edification of sorts. Yeah. So the process of discovery, your process of discovery is also process of discovery for the people who watch watch you. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It has been. And then, um, and who are the folks you've spoken to? I'm like, who are the most interesting people you've, and present company excluded? Mm-hmm. I don't want to put course. you on the yes, spot yes, here. Yes, yes, That's yes. awkward for me. Yeah, but but Both who? Are, <laughs> but who are the who are the people you've spoken to who have been most? Uh, I think interesting that, to you. You know, there's people like Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, who comes mm-hmm. on and can like break something down in, in science that, you know, I don't have a brain for that stuff. So I love that because, you know, it's like, oh, okay, that's how that works. I can, if I can get one thing, you know, out of it, then I feel like I've gleaned some knowledge. Um, but political, like political, you know, the politicians and the political pundits, and I, I like that. I, I'm interested in that right now. That's the most, you know, kind of. I think that's the most interesting stuff to me if we were talking about in this moment. I just find it I find it interesting that these people are real civil servants that they devote this amount of time to trying to do the right thing for their country, you know, some more than others, but I find that fascinating that these people fly back and forth from their states and it's just like, oh my God, and what's involved? And then they live in that dungeon, you know, those congressmen, it's like that hallway down there. You see that on the news all the time. It's like, oh my God, you guys have to work down there. It's not even like a glamorous job and they're sharing rooms in DC. I just, I find, you know, that's where I am right now. You know, that's, it's right at the bottom of the list in terms yeah. of public esteem, which is a shame because a lot of these guys and gals make enormous sacrifices to do what they do and uh, are well-motivated. But I will say this, um, uh, and I'm interested in how you deal with this. They're, they're often very much on a script uh, because they're sort of trained to do that. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that what you do works best when people are not on a script and so how do you deal with that with politicians? Yeah, I mean, they're, they can be repetitive and kind of, you know, you've heard that Talking phrase. points. Yeah, but, and that and you know what, that's their job. That's what they're going to do. But, you know, there is, you know, Barbara Boxer was on my show the day after Hillary lost. I and, know, that and, was a famous show. Yeah, and uh, and Mary McCormick was on it with me, and uh, who's sitting right here, too, because she just follows me wherever I go. And uh, <laughs> she was, you know, that was a great moment because it was, it was so real and raw because we were both so heartbroken. I didn't think I could do the show that day. You know, we, I was at Mary's house like crying until, you know, two in the morning. Then on the phone with my sister till five in the morning discussing moving to Spain and then emailing you and ask, telling you you told me that this wasn't going to happen. Yeah, I know. That was, <clears throat> believe me, you're not the only one who... But, right. But... You know, that moment with her was real. And that moment and what we talked about wasn't, they weren't talking points and they weren't real. She helped me. So why were you crying? Because I was devastated that this, a man that represents what this man represents, this buffoon is the leader of our country. After Barack Obama, we get this. That contrast doesn't sit well in my stomach. Um, there, but, uh, Who's responsible uh, ultimately for that? It seems like um, 
you know, you get that you get what you deserve in certain ways in a democracy if people don't organize, if people don't vote. Yeah, I mean, I've been working, I've been doing these college tours where I've been getting young people to kind of, Republicans and Democrats, to, and I, a lot of people are doing this, to <clears throat> discuss what, you know, how to get more involved politically. I didn't know about special elections. I didn't know about midterm elections, you know, when I was 20 or 22. I didn't know about any of that. I didn't know about special elections until like a year ago. I didn't, ne- just to find, to be informed that you know that you can call your congressperson. People, these young people were, a lot of people were lazy. And this is the result of what that laziness, you know, added up to. So I don't think it's going to happen again because we've seen what I think you have to encourage people how to get involved on a local level, how to vote for, you know, your board of educator, how to vote for your city council person. It feels good to be involved in politics. You don't have to be a politician. I think that's something that, uh, Trump has done, which is he's reinvigorated democracy in a way because you see people who haven't been talking about politics and haven't tuned in who now are and talking about, you know, asking wherever I go, what can I do? How can I get involved? But let me ask you this. You know, I uh, I have a, a place in a rural area uh, outside of Chicago, and um, almost all my neighbors had Trump signs on their yard. This is in Michigan. Uh, and they're like good people. I mean, they're not bad people. Um, uh, they're hardworking. They're good neighbors. But they, they feel like they've been screwed. Their factories close their jobs. You know, they're working their asses off. And uh, and they feel like they're not heard, that they're sort of invisible. Before the election. Before the election, yeah. yeah. And um, so how do we – what do we do about that? You know, how do we – I mean, that's a – that's what I'm thinking about: is how do you appeal? How do you how do you answer those concerns in a way that reaches those people? He obviously surfed their fear and resentment, um, but their but their concerns are real. They are real, and they were ignored. And we, uh, you know, uh, that's not not true. So we're responsible for that. You know, I mean, I I'm sure you've probably heard of the Hillbilly Elegy, that book. Yes, that in fact, uh, JD Vance has been a yeah, uh, been here. You know. Yeah, <clears throat> and uh, you know that book was. It's there's a reason why everyone read that book. You know, it's like what are we missing here? I feel you know I'm never going to let that happen again to me. I'm never going to be in a where I don't know that that's happening to that group of people. You know, I I I make I'm going to make it my business to make sure that I know what's happening in all parts of this country. Um, and you know I think a lot of people feel that way. I I don't blame them for being pissed off. I get it. I get it. It's one thing to vote for Trump because you wanted something. It's another thing to think right now that that was a good choice. You know what I mean? That this is not the answer. So I think most of them are. are uh, and JD was on the show, and and he said this that he uh, he doesn't think that that these people are going to stick with him for a while. That they're not going to in a hundred days say, okay, well, you know, this isn't working, and he's betrayed us, and so on. That right. They're going to look at their lives in two or three years from now, and they're going to say. Uh, you know, are things better or are they not? I mean, the guy promised uh, to re- fundamentally change their circumstances for the better. And, uh, you know, it's, it's sensibly, it's probably too early in their estimation to make that change. Yeah, I, 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 I guess, you know, I went bowling with three Trump supporters for my show. We filmed it, which was really not easy to do. But I wanted to just lead by example. I wanted to have a conversation where we could discuss all the things that, you know, they like about Trump and then all the things that I don't like about Trump and see where we could find common ground. Like, can we all agree that killing a baby is bad? (laughs) 
like, let's start there from the very beginning. Can we all agree that, you know, if a woman wants to have an abortion, she should have the right to have an abortion, that a man should not decide that, you know, and I wanted just to have the conversation so that I could not be accused of just talking to people on my side or that agree with me and not just for that reason, for my own benefit. I want to know what what kind of person well, you are. Some, you know? some of them would probably say uh, they, you know, this is the big, obviously, discussion that, that when you say killing a baby is bad and they'll say, yeah, killing a baby is bad, but that's how we view abortion, too. Now, Barney Frank used to say to the yeah, pro-life people in Congress, the problem with you guys is you believe life begins in, with conception and ends at birth uh, because they were killing all this stuff for for postnatal care and yeah. all this other stuff. But, um, but I mean, these are hard discussions, you know, that yeah, we don't are. have. We all live in these silos now, and these discussions, we, we kind of shake our fists across jagged divides. And, uh, you know, I think one of the big challenges is how do we re-engage with each other? And what is it that makes us Americans? I mean, what, what are the values that the mm-hmm. sort of – the, the, the top-line values that make us uh, Americans, the, you know, I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, it's a tough discussion to have. I, like, I think in uh, the fact that we're a beacon to the world and immigrants come to this, uh, want to come to this country and that people feel that we will be a shelter in the storm and that we will provide, you know, a place where you can worship freely and, you know that that has traditionally been part of what makes us America, but even that's a discussion that is harder now. I went to this guy. I was filming in Paris, and I went to go visit with a man that has has the original model for the Statue of Liberty, and we were in this beautiful museum, and it was, you know, it was, this it was incredible to look at, and it's you know it's. And he she showed me, and he said, you know, when people were coming over, he goes, when I came over to America, like on a boat with my parents, you know, you come up, and all of a sudden, you're sailing into the harbor, and you see that Statue of Liberty come up. He goes, do you have any idea what that means to so many hundreds of thousands, millions yeah, of moving. people? And it was moving, and I and you you know you don't think of that as an American. You don't even you know you take all of that for granted. Yeah. You've never been to the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> like, you haven't. No, you lived in New Jersey. <laughs> I probably went so, when I was in school, like you know, in second grade or something. But you know, you just it is it is. And this place is like I want I want people to have health care. I want refugees to be able to come here. I want to help them. I want to pay high. Ta- I want to pay taxes because I make a lot of money. I want to pay that. Yeah, you know, they, I want to give away my money. I want to help. I want to help people. I don't want to hurt people. I want people to get along and I want this to be a happy place, not a fearful place. You know, I don't understand how you can argue with doesn't do you not? Do you want to be unhappy? Do you want to be fearful? Is that a good place for anyone to be? I mean, there, there's no argument there. Yeah. So, it's going on all over the world, you know. You see yeah. what's happening in Europe as well. I'm sure when you were there, you heard some of that. that yeah, they're, definitely. They're, they have their own. Uh, you know, by the time this will be heard, it'll probably be after the French election. But the fact that you have a kind of crypto fascist uh, candidate as one of the two finalists. Yeah, it's scary. It's really scary. And I hope that they're looking at us and that, you know, they're just as scared as we did. You know, I talked to a lot of voters over there. They're just as scared as we are. They're, you know, the people who are anti um, Le Pen, they're, they're all like, oh, my God. I said, aren't you guys looking at what's happening in America? And doesn't that scare you? You know, for me also, I, and I was saying this to Mary yesterday, 
for me, it's, it's, you know, I get so hopeless and I get so defeatist and then I'm just like, oh God, I can't take this. And I'm so scared because I'm like, what if, you know, we could live in a world in 50 years in this dystopian society where women are stripped of their rights and all these men, white men are telling us what to do. And, you know, that's when my fear gets the best of me. But I, I, you, we have to remind ourselves that the resistance, not the resistance per se, but the, you know, the actual reaction people are having, nobody's just saying, oh God, we'll just deal with this for four years. Everyone's fired up, you know? There are more people that are mad than that are Trump supporters. So there's something happening. There is something positive happening. No, I said before, I think that's, and that's democracy. I mean, democracy is when citizens are engaged and taking action and participating in the process. And frankly, uh, that, that, there was, I was on the street after the, um, the day after the inauguration in Washington, um, and, uh, amid the marchers. And, um, there was more energy. Uh, be, uh, on the day after the inauguration than there was the day before the election. What kind of, did Obama have protesting when he was, in, I mean, after he was elected, was there any oh, protest? Well, not not the day after the inauguration. I mean, there were two million people. I know some have disputed this fact, but there actually was a much larger crowd at his inauguration <laughs> than at this inauguration. No, I mean, look, the protests that emerged uh, mostly emerged when he proposed the health Reform and the whole Tea Party thing yeah. grew up, and a lot of it was organized, but some of it was spontaneous. But um, there was nothing like that, you know. But there, all, he also had, you know, like eighty uh, percent approval rating or something when he it was heading to the inauguration, and Trump had Trump's was more like half that. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with Chelsea Handler. You. Uh, You've talked about celebrity and Donald Trump uh, and uh, what celebrity meant to his ability to get elected. I mean, he's the first sort of kind of celebrity president. Uh, And um, talk about that. Well, Mary, again— said uh, when she because she said you know after Brexit why don't you move she, over and put Mary yeah, in that chair? everyone likes Mary better than me by the way anyway <laughs> you will too so it's like it's futile for at this point for me to even be anywhere <laughs> just you show up instead she <clears throat> she said after Brexit which many people predicted but she was you know it said it's over Trump's gonna win Trump's gonna win she saw it wait when did she, when did she say <clears throat> after Brexit she said oh. Trump's gonna win watch and then she was right I was like nope 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 it's not gonna happen it's not gonna happen because I was trying to be hopeful and you know, I, 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 I think a lot of people. It seems so improbable to a lot of people, including me, that you know, I, uh, you know, I told you about my neighbors in, in Michigan. Mm-hmm. That should have meant something to me. Yeah, and I overrode. It's like, who are you going to believe? The you know, right? Your lying eyes or right? Common sense, you know. So. She said that, and she goes, it's, it's over now. She goes, it's all going to be celebrities, all celebrities. She goes, Dwayne The Rock Johnson is going to run for president. It's going to be Dwayne and Oprah. And literally three weeks ago, that article came out about Dwayne, Dwayne The Rock Johnson like possibly thinking about running for president. So I don't know. Where the fuck does that leave us? I mean, we need celebrities now? I guess with Oprah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah exactly. No, I mean, uh, look, I... I I'm I'm really I was asked I I spoke to a group today and they asked like who 
it's kind of crazy, you know, who's, who's the, who are the leading contenders for 2020? And um, first of all, I'm a little sheepish about making any predictions anymore, but uh, it's very, very early. Um, but I'd like to believe, I mean, there are people who, who believe that, that, that you have to have celebrities now. Um, but I, you know, my, my sense in the past has been, it really has animated my theories on this stuff, that people choose sort of the remedy to what they have, not the replica. So putting up our celebrity against their celebrity doesn't seem to me to be, because I think what's lacking yeah, here what is, uh, and people I sort of recognize, there are a lot of people do, like experience actually matters. Uh, you've got the least experienced president ever surrounded by the least experienced staff. And, you know, there's been a lot of screw-ups as a result of that. Now, there are a lot of other things at play here, and, you know, whether it's malevolence or whatever you want to ascribe Cephalus. to. But lack of evidence, a lack of experience is something that I think people can yeah, see. So you- I'm not sure that Dwayne, uh, <laughs> Dwayne The Rock Johnson – is uh, the answer is to that problem? Candidate? Yeah, <laughs> I know he can he can handle a heavy load, but that's not <laughs> necessarily the thing, you know. So, um, so I, you know, we'll we'll, we'll see. But um, but explain to me because you're a, you spent a lot of time studying the celebrity uh, culture. What is it? What was other than sort of appealing to people's anger, which we saw, but how did Trump use that celebrity status and what did his experience on television do for him? Did you see him doing stuff and say, yeah, man, that's a that's a TV move. That's a reality TV now, guy. For me, Donald Trump is such a buffoon, idiot, mess, egomaniacal lunatic that I never took him seriously. You mean that in the nicest way, Yes, I'm I sure. mean that as a compliment. I, I, he, I was I, – I mean just based on values alone – I'm like, there's no way that the majority of America is going to vote for this person. And they didn't. But but there was no way to me that that would be a pe- – like, I was so out of touch with the fact that – of how many people are like that. Like, I like to think that good outweighs bad and, like, you know, good – But a lot of people – there are also a lot of people who, like, watched The Celebrity Apprentice who saw this guy – and The Apprentice saw this guy who, you know, always was uber – you know, on TV, you know, he always knew what to do. He was in charge, got the job done, yeah, but you know, didn't. Does he get the job done? I mean, it's, it's so transparent to me that he doesn't do much of anything, that he talks and he loves himself and he doesn't have to take a lot of action. I would, I, I've never seen that show. I mean, I saw clips of it at times, but he, I mean, that to me is so transparent of, of it just being, you know, yeah, it appeals to a certain group of people. I and I don't want to, you know. You know, we did a we did a poll. I asked somebody to do a poll um, in the summer of 2015, and we looked at Republican primary voters, and I asked them to have a, to have a, a tab and uh, f- an oversample for uh, Apprentice watchers, so that we had a we could. And um, the people who watched The Apprentice had like these towering estimations of Trump and everybody else was sort of middling to negative. These were among Republican primary voters. So clearly that he created a base for himself on TV. This is all leading up to saying yeah. th- this could be your opening. The Chelsea Handler for president, you know, oh, the whole TV yeah, that thing. that would be great. I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> what a disaster. <laughs> but... Um, uh, 
but uh, I'll tell you, it, my sense was that, you know, when people, people voted for Barack Obama because they didn't think that George W. Bush saw the nuance and the complexity in the world, that he wasn't deliberate enough, that he wasn't thoughtful enough, and they got a thoughtful, deliberate president. I think after eight years, people were sort of like, you know what, this thoughtful, deliberate thing is hard. You know, I just want someone who's going to take care of everything. Yeah. And so that celebrity, so that apprentice thing about the Uber guy. Yeah, 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 I along, get, yeah. yeah. I mean, was actually, he was set up to, and it's something I should have seen as it was happening, but he was sort of set up to uh, succeed. Yeah, yeah, now in hindsight, it looks that way, obviously. I mean, it didn't, I just, I didn't think that, you know, all of the things and the vitriol that came out of his campaign, I just was like, who could ever have a child and want to vote and have this person who could have a child in the military and trust this man to send him off somewhere who could ever have a a young girl like I thought he would have just you know excommunicated so many people by his language like that it was just reasonable that he wouldn't get elected it was reasonable that he was unreasonable and yeah. that's but he said not there was a weird dynamic because first of all his 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 outrageousness also was viewed as kind of uh, giving the finger to the sort of elites and the establishment you know it was almost it was almost immaterial what it was yeah. it was like he was so not he was so um not politically correct, as he would say, that it was a certification of his authenticity, a certification that he was a change guy, that he wasn't going to, you know. So, um, uh, you know, but uh, look, I take your point. Uh, <laughs> what was it? I take your point <laughs> completely. What was my point? It was what brilliant. What was your point and then Taste, what was my point? <laughs> for, we, we can move on. Just take my word for it. It was a brilliant point that you were making. No, that you, you know, that, you know, he, you're absolutely right. I mean, you want... I mean, at least I want the president of the United States to be a role model. I don't want the president of the United States saying stuff like we saw on that uh, uh, Access Hollywood tape. I don't want the president of the United States using, uh, you know, sort of angry language that he uses or or, or, or fomenting, uh, you know, hate. Uh, hate. There should be no. a, a – the, the president of the United States is expected to hold – a different level is expected to behave at a different like level of standards to have a different level of standards i believe there should be a psychiatric evaluation for anybody that runs for office in to that high degree i mean there should be there should be a psychiatric evaluation i mean wh- why isn't there you know why why isn't that a thing we can't have somebody who's mentally unstable who, who shows signs of being completely unstable running our country and in charge of like the global community so, I don't know. I, I mean, I think there should be a lot of things. I mean, I'd also like to get him get him tested you know for syphilis because you know I believe he has that. I think that 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 if people uh, say that again, syphilis. You know what I said. Uh, all right, we're going to move on here. <laughs> I don't know how to handle syphilis on on this podcast. <laughs> for people who want further elaboration, yeah, go to the New to, Republic and read an article, or you can watch the first episode of my show this season. That's what I'm getting to. Oh, oh, yes. oh promotion. Yeah, uh, the uh, but it seems to me that uh, among other things, the uh, Trump effect has been that there is more, even more interest. I know you had a big hit before this, but uh, more interest in what you're doing. Uh, you and I were talking beforehand. Stephen Colbert 
um, was sort of struggling in part doing the celebrity thing. Mm-hmm. Now he's sort of returned to his roots. Yeah. And doing, you know, very biting political yes. satiric commentary. And he's like killing it. Yeah, he is. So um, in, in that sense, Trump is creating a, a, a market for comedians. Well, he is. I mean, and obviously satire. there's plenty. Well, and Sean Spicer, I yes. mean, is creating a market for comedians. I yes. mean, the whole, a Kellyanne comedy, the whole kit and caboodle there. I mean, obviously, I mean, it's, it, there's, it's endless. You can make fun of so much. It's so ridiculous. You have to laugh at it because otherwise we'd all be crying all day, you know? Um, but there are so many characters in that administration that are, are absurd. <laughs> and it's funny. It is funny to watch Sean Spicer, you know, and impress briefing looking like he just had diarrhea for an hour after he has to go out and lie and repeat something that he said the opposite of yesterday. I mean, it's just a disaster. So it's that aspect is really fun, you know, but I do still want it to be over. (laughs) I want it to be over as soon as possible. Um, I don't want to, um, I don't want to leave without talking about what brought you to Chicago, which is to do, um, to raise some money for, uh, uh, Syrian refugees, but talk a little bit about that. So there's this Chiron Fund. You know Leon Weaseltier? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, he. I met him. We did a New York Times uh, magazine photo shoot. Once. Brilliant, like, brilliant yeah, guy. Really brilliant. I mean, yeah. he sent me something he wrote. Scary brilliant. He sent me something he wrote a few weeks ago. I was like, I don't understand. <laughs> yes. I'm like, I don't yeah. have a brain like that. I'm not that <laughs> cerebral. And he's like, okay, get on the phone. I'll explain it to you. But <laughs> excuse me, sorry, everyone. Um. He, I asked him, I had read an article that morning about refugees in Syria situation. This was like a year and a half ago. And I asked him, I said, do you know, I don't want to give money to the Red Cross and like all these big organizations. I need, I need, I want to, fa- like, I want to see a family. If I, even if it's one family, I want to, how do I help these people? Like, you know, how do I, well, I asked him, how do I get a family? And then he's like, it's not that easy. <laughs> but he has a, he had a friend in Aleppo named Alina, who's from Aleppo. And she does amazing charity work. She owns this, uh, she, sorry, she runs this organization called the Karam Foundation, which is K-A-R-A-M, um, organization.org, uh, karamfoundation.org. And she, uh, she, I've been in touch with her ever since. And we've just, she funds schooling for the kids that are in refugee camps so that they don't have to go to work because, you know, their parents are out of work and then the kids start working. So that you pay for them to go to school and you pay for their transportation and their food. And then she also finances people who have been relocated over here and in places like Portland and Texas and Boston. And so you can pay for their English classes for their parents and the kids. You can buy them a car. You can chip in for a car. You can um, help pay their rent for the first six months so that they assimilate and so that they are set up to win. And that, you know, and And to contribute. I mean, you know, this is what's missed about this story, you know, and I told you beforehand, and I've said it before here, that I'm the son of an immigrant who fled this very kind of thing, you know, religious persecution, violence, tyranny, uh, and came here and made a life and hopefully, uh, you know, a, a contribution that made us stronger as a country. This whole country's been built on stories like that we we ought to open our arms and welcome these folks um these people, as we have throughout our history these people have had had have jobs they had jobs in syria their whole country's been torn apart by that lunatic that's running it and they're willing to work they're able they they don't want to come to america they wanted to stay in syria they can't 
And to, to, to not take more refugees than we're taking, I mean, look what Canada's doing. It's heart-wrenching. And so, you know, I want people to know that, that we, there are Americans that want you here. You know, I, I want you to know that somebody you've never met is going to look after you and, like, and, and take care of you as much as I can, you know, which is a lot. I have a lot of money and I, implant, I intend to use it for things like that. And so the, that kind of stuff, you know, you want to do, you know, you can't do everything. There's so many causes right now, you know, there's so many things that are at risk um, or that are in jeopardy. But when you can have an impact on, you know, people's lives and their family and like, you know, a new beginning. Have you met some of these families? Yeah, I, well, I get pictures and updates all the time. I mean, I don't want to, I will meet them. I just, you know, I don't. I hate when people. I don't want that. You want to, yes. I like be, it to be a little bit anonymous. I just don't want to feel. I don't want anybody to think they owe me something for me doing something. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. just obviously though. When the time is right, I'll meet them, and I mean the kids and stuff. I'd love to meet the kids for sure. Mm-hmm. Say again the name of the foundation. Foundation dot org. Yeah, yeah. So it's people should work. Yeah, because you're you're right that um, there's a there's a, a whole bunch of Americans who want to be helpful. It was we saw some of it uh, during the uh, when the travel ban came up. People racing to airports and uh, making right. their voices heard. But this is a more tangible way to express oneself uh, about the policy and to let people know. I mean, I'm hoping that the world sees America as more than just the president. And uh, yeah. Exactly. Exactly right. It's like, you know, I was in India. We were filming in India and this little girl goes, little girl on the side of the street goes, what happened, Trump? (laughs) I'm like, you know, everyone, the international community's response to that election and the marches that happened made me really take a look at like, okay, we have a response. America has such a huge responsibility in the global community. Right. And that's one of the things at issue, of course, because there is this sort of Battleship America theory that we should pull up the drawbridge and and uh, that uh, and the Secretary of State spoke to it the other day. We that we're gonna we need to do less for the in the world. Yeah, but then invite Duterte over for drinks. Yeah, at the same time. Yeah, so you know that's I don't think that reflects the majority view no, in no. this country and. Um, yeah, I want people, you know, most Amer- I mean, not, I think most Americans are good people and most Americans understand that this is a melting pot. This country is immigrants. What yeah, are we, we all have about? stories. We all have stories. So, um uh but I applaud you for what you're doing and using your platform the way the way you are. Thank you. And for those who uh want to follow up on uh, on syphilis or anything else. Yes, yeah, syphilis. Look it uh, up. Yes. Uh, go to Netflix. Syphilis. Type in syphilis Donald Trump and see what comes up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, Chelsea Handler, thanks for changing the tenor of my thoughtful podcast. And uh, we'll... You knew I would. I knew. I knew. It's really a pleasure to have you. Thank, Thank you, you for having me. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.